where we are going to be able to learn some more about uh, what we just sang about from God's Word this morning. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and uh, we're beginning a new chapter in our study of the Gospel of John. If you're visiting with us today, we're making our way through this uh, grand gospel. And uh, we uh, are right in the middle of the upper room discourse where Jesus uh, spent some time with his disciples, encouraging them, challenging them, um, comforting them uh, before his death, uh, which was uh, just a few hours away. And so John chapter 14 all kind of goes together, but um, because of the importance of the first six verses, I thought we should just uh, camp out on those this morning. Um, and uh, we'll have an opportunity to get through this chapter, over the, hopefully in the next uh, few weeks. But um, just know that title that uh, is, at least over chapter 14 in my Bible, it might be in your Bible as well, that Jesus comforts his disciples. That's basically the whole point of, of this chapter. And so let's see how Jesus um, began by comforting the disciples. Chapter 14, verse 1. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Father, we thank you for this very familiar text. Uh, Many of us probably have uh, some of these verses or all of these verses memorized. We've quoted them many times. We've read them many times. And so I pray, Father, that your Spirit would... Help us to see these verses with fresh eyes and with fresh ears, Lord, that we might be comforted by what Jesus had to say to his disciples, because we know that's why he said these things. And Lord, I, I just sense that, there's a, that this is a very timely message in light of where we're at as a, as a people and really as, as the world turns. And so I pray that you would guide and direct my mouth and my mind to say the things that would be what you want us to hear today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure you've noticed, as I have, that uh, there's a current fascination with heaven, not just among Christians, but uh, among non-Christians as well. And uh, in the last few years, we've seen books describing people's experiences of going to heaven and back, skyrocketing to the bestseller lists, not just the Christian book sales, but even the secular book sales. And uh, the craze, believe it or not, started right here in Texas, when a Baptist minister named Don Piper was in a terrible head-on collision with, a, with an 18-wheeler on an old bridge crossing Lake Livingston. Some of you have actually crossed that bridge where he was in that horrific wreck, His book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, has sold millions of copies, and he's really gone around not just our our state, but our whole country, talking about his experience. 
Uh, more recently, a Wesleyan pastor in Nebraska named Todd Burpo wrote a book about his son Colton, who was at, at the age of four, uh, claims to have visited heaven while on the operating table during an emergency appendectomy. The book is, of course, titled Heaven is for Real, subtitled A Little Boy's Astounding Story of His Trip to Heaven and Back, recently adapted right, and released as a movie several months ago. Now, from time to time, I get asked by people, hey, what do you think about these experiences that people have, and um, what do you think about these books, and what do you think about that movie? And um, in short, I think they undermine the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, because they exalt subjective experience of people over the objective truth of God's Word. And the unfortunate result of these kinds of of books and movies is that they encourage a more mystical, experiential-based faith rather than the one that's based firmly on this thing right here. Um, I find it interesting that Paul went to heaven and back. Uh, He says he did in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but he never talked about it. In fact, God forbid him to talk about it. It really served one purpose and one purpose only, not so he could write a book, not so he could go on a speaking tour. It was to humble him, to break him. Um, And so I think it's ironic that whenever someone today has some kind of near-death out-of-body experience, that's all they talk about, right? Uh, Which is not according to the example set by the Apostle Paul. Um, They'll write a book about it. They'll launch a speaking tour, and what happens? Undiscerning Christians just gobble this stuff up, right? Um, I told you this before. Some of you may remember this. I actually overheard a lady say that reading Heaven is for Real has helped her grow closer to God than even more than reading her Bible. And I was just like, ooh, yikes. Where are we going with this stuff, right? Um, And sadly, that's not an uncommon response to this kind of stuff. Um, but I think we need to remember what Peter said in Second Peter chapter 1. Peter was describing how he had the glorious privilege of witnessing the transfigure, transfiguration of Jesus Christ up on that mountain where Jesus somehow revealed his glory to Peter, James, and John. And he actually was an eyewitness to that. And yet he says that what he saw was nothing compared to what the Bible says. In fact, let me read for you his words, 2 Peter chapter 2, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such, as a, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So obviously all of those details are describing the transfiguration. But notice what he says. So, in light of that, or compared to that, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. We know he's talking about the Scripture because he goes on to say, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy has ever been made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so he's, he's, he's basically, Peter's comparing um, an eyewitness account of Jesus 
in all of his glory and the word of God, the scriptures. And he says, if, if you have your choice of going with an eyewitness account of Jesus Christ and the Bible, go with the Bible. Because the Bible is more sure, it's more certain, it's, it's verifiable. And so he, he exhorted his readers here to pay more attention to what God has said in his word than to, to personal experiences. Again, because personal experiences are, are, are untestable, they're unverifiable. Whereas the Bible is sure. I appreciate the fact that there have been a number of like-minded pastors and, and theologians who've written insightful critiques of this current craze of supposed trips to heaven and back. Uh, probably the one book I would recommend most to, to you if you're curious and want to read some more about this subject, it's uh, John MacArthur's updated uh, edition of The Glory of Heaven, The Truth About Heaven, Angels, and Eternal Life. And he's got several new chapters and appendices that, that specifically address um, what's going on in our culture today. Um, just let me read for, for you a couple of the titles and it'll give you a, a feel for kind of what he thinks about it. Um, Heavenly Hash um, is, is one title. Um, Heaven is Real, Hallucinations Are Not. Um, and so, again, um, Seduced by the Light, uh, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, some things like that. So a very helpful resource. In fact, I was just helped by just quickly breezing through this. And, and, and I think the statement that, that shocked me the most that uh, this author said was, he goes, I don't believe those people actually went to heaven. And he says, the reason why I can be so confident of that is because if they went to heaven, they wouldn't be talking about the things they're talking about. They wouldn't be talking about seeing Aunt May and Uncle John and, and, and Grandma and Grandpa and all the things that, that sometimes from on a human level we look forward to in heaven, the lost loved one that we look forward to that we miss, right? But if you look at any account of a heavenly vision, right, a vision of heaven in the Bible, people were on their faces worshiping the triune, holy, holy, holy God. And, uh, and that's not what you're seeing, right? That's not what you're hearing from these experiences. It's talking about rainbow horses and angels' wings and all sorts of other stuff, which may or may not be true, right? But it's not what heaven is all about. And so I appreciate the way John MacArthur is always very black and white and just says, hey, I know they didn't go to heaven because of what they're talking about. And uh, so I'd encourage you to read that. In the meantime, let me just read an excerpt from another guy that I, I, I always appreciate. His name is Tim Challies. He's a, a pastor in Canada. Uh, he's probably most well-known as a blogger. Uh, he, he just does a great job reviewing books. If you're ever wondering in a book whether you should read it or not, um, go on timchallies.com and see if he's written a review on it. It's very helpful. But he wrote a little review of one of these uh, books about heaven called Heaven Tourism. And uh, he kind of pokes fun at it at first. He says, traveling to heaven and back is where it's at today. Don Piper, Colton Burton, and Bill Wise, I haven't mentioned Bill Wise, he wrote a book called 23 Minutes in Hell. So he went the opposite direction, okay? Um, Challies says that he must have booked his trip on the wrong website because um, he, he, he ended up somewhere he didn't want to end up. And so the whole point of 23 Minutes in Hell is, guess what? I went to hell for 23 minutes and I'm I came back to tell you, you don't want to go there. Really, thanks. I, I'm really glad I've got that going for me now because uh, I already knew that from what the Bible says, that we don't need to go there. We don't want to go there, right? So he's talking about these guys that write these books. He says they've established afterlife travel journals as a whole new genre in Christian publishing. 
He said, I'll grant that the cost of this type of journey is rather steep. You've got to die, though only for just a few minutes. But it's a sound investment when you factor in the sales figures. I can think of quite a few authors who would trade a few minutes of life for 50 plus weeks on the bestseller list and a few appearances on TBN. Now he gets to, to, to be more serious. He says, how do I respond to those who say they have been to heaven? When a Christian or a person who claims to be a Christian tells me that he's been to heaven, I, am I obliged to believe him or at least give him the benefit of the doubt? Charlie's answer is no. I'm under no obligation. They can tell me all the stories they want in, in, in a sincere tone, but I do not believe them. I'm not necessarily saying that these people are liars, just that I'm under no obligation to believe another person's experience. Here's why. First, the Bible gives us no indication whatsoever that God will work in this way and that he will call one of us to heaven and then cause us to return. It is for, the man, it is for man to die once and then the judgment or the resurrection to allow a man or a boy, for that matter, to experience heaven and then to bring him back would not be grace but cruelty. Second, the reason each of these authors offers that through their experience we now find confidence that what God says is true. Um, a guy I know wrote a blog that his, he titled, Heaven is for Real, No Duh. <laughs> to make the point, okay, do we really need all these people's experiences to verify that what the Bible has already told us is true? He says, the kind of proof is exactly the kind of proof we should not need and should not want. Experiential evidence is what he's talking about. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Of course, that's what Jesus said to Thomas, right? Who needed to see in order to believe. He says, what is faith? It is simply believing that what God says in his word is true. We do not need tales of heaven or stories of those who claim to have been there. And then this is how he wraps it up. And I think this is really helpful, especially in light of our text this morning, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. He says, if you struggle believing what the Bible says... But learn to find security in the testimony of a toddler. Well, I feel sorry for you. And I do not mean this in a condescending way. If God's word is not sufficient for you, if the testimony of his spirit given to believers is not enough for you, you will not find any true hope in the unproven tales of a child. This hope may last for a moment, but it will not sustain you. It will not bless you in those times when hope is waning and times are hard. I think it's interesting that when Jesus said what he said here, um, the disciples' hope was waning and times were hard. And I don't think there's any better passage in God's word that gives us hope and security of heaven, right, than John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. And, and again, Jesus made these promises about heaven to specifically sustain a group of believers, again, whose hope was waning and whose times were hard. Now, this is one of those places in, in, in the text where a chapter break was, was unfortunately placed right in the middle of a very important dialogue, and it, would, it could cause someone to miss the critical connection of what Jesus was saying here in, in chapter 14 with what he has just said in chapter 13. Now, some make the link um, between verses 38 and, and, and uh, chapter, thir- chapter 13, verse 38, and chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, here's Jesus telling Peter... Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. 
And then he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And, and, and they would say that Jesus was speaking directly to Peter, providing him a word of comfort uh, after telling him that he would deny him three times, right? And so his heart was troubled. Well, unfortunately, that can't be the case because the, the, the plural pronouns here, the yours and the yous, are, are all plural, which means that Jesus was addressing all of the disciples. Peter wasn't the only one with a troubled heart. Every one of the 11 uh, disciples that remained in the upper room after Judas left must have been scared. They must have been confused. Why? Well, they were reeling from the recent revelation that one of them was a traitor and he would betray their master. Uh, They were shocked to hear that the strongest and, and the boldest one of them would deny that he even knew Jesus. Not just once, not just twice, but three times before the sun came up the next morning. And so they were probably thinking, man, if Peter can't stand up in the midst of all this pressure, how are we going to stand up? And if that wasn't enough to deal with, Jesus had just informed them that he was leaving them and that they couldn't come with him right now. Remember back in verse 33 from last week, little children, I'm with you a little while longer You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. That must have been like a bomb went off in the upper room in their minds. What are you you talking about? Where, where, Where are you going, and why can't we come with you? And we've given up everything to follow you, and now you're telling us you're leaving us? We've left everything to follow you, and now you're leaving us? And you're telling us we can't come with you? And so the news of his departure was absolutely devastating to them and, and combined with the weight of all these other surprising new details and information, it just must have been overwhelming to them and, and surely their hearts were feeling anxious and, and, and sad and that's why Jesus said, do not let your hearts be what? Troubled. Key phrase there that really is the key that unlocks the, the, the whole purpose of this passage. In fact, notice verse 27. Later on, he says the exact same theme. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. What's the opposite of being troubled? Right? Peace, right? Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so he says it a second time. And these two comforting statements, verse 1, verse 27, sort of act like bookends to what what Jesus is saying here uh, in chapter 14. This is one of the most comforting chapters in the entire New Testament. And the theme of the chapter is basically assurance. And and Jesus was providing his disciples assurances that they could lay hold of that would quiet their troubled hearts, that would calm their fears, that would put their minds at ease, that would encourage them and and strengthen them for for what lied ahead in in the hours to come, in the weeks to come, in the years to come while they were waiting for his return. You're like, so what? What about me? I is there anything for me in this passage? Okay, I'm not in the upper room with Jesus. Well. Um, I think that every assurance that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room applies to every believer today. These are promises that we can claim, truths that we can lay hold of as we wait for Jesus to come back to get us. Anybody waiting for Jesus to come back to get him? 
Yeah, I hope all of us, right? So, so what do we do in the meantime, right? Well, this is what we do in the meantime. And, and, and I mentioned in my opening prayer that this, I think, is an extremely timely study for us in light of all that's going on in the world right now. I mean, I've heard people tell me that um, a lot recently. Man, can you believe all that's going on in the world? These things kind of be the, the common denominator with, with conversations that come up with different people. Listen, well, my 20-year-old son, right, who, who doesn't necessarily always stay clued into what's going on around him other than what's in his own little world, and he says, hey, Dad, what's up, man? What's going on in the world? And I'm like, exactly, Zach. Good point, buddy. What is going on in the world? Man, I think that Jesus is coming back. A lot of, lot of amazing things are all going down at the same time. Rare diseases spreading, planes crashing, getting shot out of the sky, uh, racial rioting in the Midwest, and gay marriages increasing. I just saw yesterday on the sports uh, website that, that here was uh, one of the WNBA uh, gals on her knee with a ring um, asking another WNBA gal to, for her handed marriage. I mean, they're just putting this stuff out there like it's like, you know, you and your wife or you and your husband got engaged, right? It's, 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 it's fair game now. Fighting in Israel, right? Whenever we see stuff going on in Israel, like, whoa, what's up now, right? Anything goes down in Israel, right? You, you, you kind of think, whoa, this is, this is something to take note of. And then throw in the mix, right? Um, we don't know a whole lot about how Russia plays into the end times, right? Uh, there are some that would interpret that they play a significant role, that, that, that nation from the north, right? And so here you've got Putin and being more emboldened than ever, right, and kind of turning the clock back and kind of the, kind of the Cold War era mentality. And then you've got things going on in Iraq and, and people saying that that whole, the face of the Middle East is going to completely change and there's going to be nations that, that disappear and other nations that rise up and, and, and you're just going, whoa, this is amazing. And, and so all these things combined would, could very easily cause our, our hearts to be what? Troubled, Right? To, to be anxious, to be fearful, and, and we, even, we haven't even got to what's going on in your little world. With your marriage and your family and your kids and your job and your health and your finances. And, and, and listen, sometimes that's enough to cause your heart to be troubled, right? You don't even have time to think about what's going on in the world because you've got enough problems in your own home, right? And rather than becoming scared or worried... The point of this passage is that we can find hope in the fact that this is not our home. And Jesus is coming back to get us to take us to heaven someday. And so for these disciples in the upper room, Jesus wanted them to know that his leaving was not this huge disaster that they imagined it would be. In fact, it was a good thing. Because all these amazing blessings would, would flow uh, and would come to them um, as a result of him leaving, i.e. the Holy Spirit being one of them, right? We're going to get to that in, in, in verse 16. Uh, he was going to send a comforter, somebody to actually be with them and walk with them. Um, and so they had every reason to be happy, to be hopeful. First and foremost for the fact that, that his departure from them would secure their eternal destiny. And that's what he gets at in verses 1 through 6. Hey, I am locking your place in heaven. I'm securing your place in heaven. And I can't do that unless I go do what I got to do and go where I got to go. And so his basic flow of thought here in, in verses 1 through 6 is this. I, listen, I'm going away. You can't come with me right now, but don't worry. Trust me. 
I'm going to prepare a place for you in heaven, and as soon as it's ready, I'll come back and get you. That's the spirit uh, and the heart of these six verses. Now, let me just maybe divide them up into some truths here, some truths about heaven, six truths about heaven that serve to comfort us and calm our hearts in the midst of a chaotic and confusing world. Anybody feel like the world's a little chaotic right now, a little confusing right now? Maybe your life's a little chaotic. Maybe your life's a little confusing, right? So here are six truths about heaven that serve to comfort and calm your heart in the midst of a chaotic and confusing world. What are these six truths? Number one, the peace of heaven. The peace of heaven. We've already talked about this initial phrase here, do not let your hearts be troubled, uh, don't, don't let your hearts be stirred up, agitated, almost like uh, the idea here is internal panic, right? Sometimes we, you know, we feel our hearts start to go faster and we just kind of get nervous and, and, and he says, hey, don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus was uh, commanding them here, this is a command, this is not a suggestion, hey guys, stop, stop worrying. No, this is a command, stop worrying. This was a command to relax. <laughs> this was a command to chill. You ever thought you'd be commanded to relax or chill, right? God is commanding, Jesus was commanding these guys to relax, to, to experience the peace that passes all understanding. He wanted his disciples to, to be able to look past their, their present confusion and pain and turmoil and problems to their glorious future. Paul loved to talk about this. Paul had lots of pain and lots of problems in his life, but he said things like this, Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen, I can endure anything on this earth because I got heaven coming. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. What you think is like, will this ever end? This is so much to bear. He says, hey, you know, really, it's really light and it's really momentary in comparison to the weight of glory, right, that we will receive uh, in heaven that is beyond comparison. Warren Wiersbe said it well. He said, The assurance of a heavenly home at the end of life's road enables us to bear joyfully with the obstacles and battles along the way. That's good, isn't it? The assurance of a heavenly home at the end of life's road enables us to bear joyfully with the obstacles and battles along the way. And so you can face trials in your life without any fear without any anxiety, and in fact, you can face death without any fear or anxiety. Now, granted, there are some scary elements to death, right? When is it going to happen? How is it going to happen? What's going to happen to the people that I leave behind, right? There's things like that, but ultimately, right, we shouldn't be scared to die. Why? Because we know we're going to heaven. And so really, for every believer, right, the most peaceful moment of their life should be when? Lying on their deathbed, right? When they are this far from the doorway to heaven. I mean, back here, we're, we, we could be weeks, months, years, right? Centuries away, we're not sure, right? But when you get that close and you're just like at the doorstep and all is it going to be one more step and you're in, that should be the, the, the most peaceful time in your life. So we have the peace of heaven. Number two, we have the promise of heaven. 
Notice he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Again, he's giving commands here. These are not suggestions. These are not good ideas. These are commands. He's saying, listen, believe in God and believe also in me. Literally, keep on believing in me. Keep on believing in in God. Keep on trusting. Don't ever stop trusting. Don't ever stop believing in, in what you know to be true about God and what you know to be true about me. This is a double imperative, right? He, he's saying, believe God and believe me. Now, if this was anyone else, that would be blasphemy. But who said this? Jesus Christ who is God in human flesh. Jesus put himself on the same level as God. Why? Because he and the Father are what? One. And that's what got him into trouble. That's why the Jews wanted to kill him, because they thought that was blasphemous. But here again, he's just reaffirming the oneness, right? His oneness with the Father. That Listen, I can be trusted to keep my promises as much as God can be trusted to keep his promises. Do you guys trust God to keep his promises? Okay, then trust me to keep my promises. And I'm about to make a promise to you that I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back to get you. You need to believe me. You need to trust me. Sometimes we, we have to do that with our, with our children, right? When they're little especially and, and we're maybe going somewhere or doing something and they get all worked up and they get all anxious and they get fearful like, oh, they're never going to see us again and we're just like going to Walmart. You know, or we're just going on a date, or we're going somewhere, going away to work for a week, somewhere out of town, and, and you got to kind of take them and hold them and maybe even put their little face in your hand and say, look, you need to trust me. You need to trust Daddy. You need to believe me. Everything's going to be okay. I promise you I will come back, right? And they're like, okay, and they go off and run and play whatever they're playing with, right? So this is what he's doing. Hey, guys, relax, okay? I'm making a promise to you. I'll be back. Number three, another truth about heaven is the place in heaven. The place in heaven. Verse two, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Notice how Jesus talks about heaven as if he's been there. Yeah, exactly. Okay? He's the hometown boy. Right? This is his backyard. This is, this is where he's from. So he knows exactly what he's talking about. He says, hey, listen, in my dad's house. Okay? My dad's got a big house. And, and there's lots of dwelling places. Think I'm just making this up? Obviously, the Father's house is a, is a reference to heaven. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Matthew 6, 9. Um, Our Father who art in heaven. Right? Um, the title Father is used 53 times uh, in the Upper Room Discourse here, chapters 13 to 17, 22 times in this chapter alone, so he's definitely emphasizing the Father's role uh, in heaven. But notice he says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Now this is where we have to maybe rethink our hymnology uh, some of the images that maybe we've picked up along the way by singing hymns that aren't necessarily based on the scriptures or even secular songs that aren't based on scripture because it seems like one of the most popular images of heaven is that we have something waiting for us in heaven. And what is that? A mansion, right? We sing songs growing up. I grew up singing songs about mansions in heaven, right? Well, 
really there's no place in the Bible that, that, uh, that talks about mansions in heaven. Now, it, it does talk about a mansion. Somebody's got a mansion in heaven. Who is it? God. God has a mansion in heaven, and there are many rooms in that mansion. That's probably the best way to understand what Jesus was saying here. Heaven is not uh, a subdivision, right, with, with all sorts of mansions over here, and then maybe middle-income homes over here, and then you got the you know, other side of the tracks over there for those people that just got in by the skin of their teeth, right? And they're kind of over there. Really? Do we think that is the way heaven's going to be like? I don't think so. This is a much more, I think, biblical picture here that, that, that this is just one big mansion that belongs to God with enough rooms for all of His children. Look at verse 23. He who does, uh, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and he will come to him and make our abode with him. Going to heaven is getting to go live with God in his house, right, in heaven. There was, a, there was a song several years back, Christian band, it was called A Big, Big House. And it was just kind of a fun, snap your fingers kind of song that, hey, God has a big, big house, and we're going there someday, and we're having a great time. And nothing like going home, right? Nothing like going home, right? And, and listen, there's going to be room for all of us, right? Heaven is described in the Bible as a kingdom, uh, an inheritance, a country, a city. But here it's described as a home, a big house. And so we need to always remember, listen, we, we, have a, we have a, all have houses or, or places to live here, but they're just temporary, right? Our, our real home is in heaven. Um, this is not our home. We're aliens and strangers as as, as Peter said, passing through a foreign land. I love what, how Paul said it. Um, he said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 24, our citizenship is in heaven, right? We're not American citizens. We're, we're, we're citizens of heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he says, um, if it were not so, I would have told you. Again, what do, you, what do you guys think? I'm making this stuff up, right? If they weren't the case, I wasn't going to tease you. I wasn't going to yank your chain. I wasn't going to give you false hope. I wouldn't do that to you. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and get you. Now you say, well, how, what, is he, what is he doing to prepare a place for us? And I don't think he was talking about, I'm going to go put my carpentry skills to work up in heaven and I'm going to build an addition onto the big mansion and make sure there's enough room, 11 more rooms. We've got to have 11 more rooms here for, for you disciples, right? I think he was referring to all that he had to do to prepare the way for them to get to heaven, which started with what was going to happen next, his death. That's where he had to go. He had to go to the cross. He had to go to the grave. He had to be resurrected. He had to go back to heaven. He had to go to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us. This is all, I think, included in that he had to go and prepare a place for us. And so this is the place in heaven. Number four, there's the plan for heaven. You say, okay, that's great. So he's gone away to prepare a place for us. He died he was buried, he rose again, he ascended, he seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. So what's next? How, how's he going to 
follow through on this plan. He says in verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. So what's the plan, right? Well, I don't think when Jesus said, I will come again, I don't think he had in mind his second coming per se when, when, when he would return with the saints to judge the wicked and to, to set up his kingdom on earth. That's part of his, I guess we could talk about his second coming, right? His first coming, right, was when he came to earth and he lived and died and rose again and ascended back down. That's the first coming. And his second coming is when he's coming back and there's a bunch of different aspects or, 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 or facets of that coming back, his return. And, 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 it, and it starts with... The rapture, that, that's the, the next eschatological event on the horizon for which all of us should be living in anticipation of. This should be our blessed hope, right? I think that's what Jesus was referring to here. It's the event that precedes his return to earth when he actually comes and he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and he takes on the Antichrist and he takes on the the armies of the world. That's not what is implied here. There's, There's none of the details here of any kind of wrath or judgment. This is simply retrieving his people prior to the tribulation. And so I think this is when he returns in the sky to, to rapture us uh, as his children. There's a couple key passages in the New Testament that describe this rapture event. Um, like again, I, again, I think it's uh, we we as a church hold to what, what we call a pre-tribulational rapture, where we believe this is going to happen before the tribulation, and and, and we get reason for that view from 1 Corinthians 15, for example. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In other words, something has to happen, something has to change for us to go from earth to heaven, and and how is that going to happen? Well, it's a mystery, right? Even the the whole uh, flow of the end times is a mystery, we, just, we really are, are left to do the very best we can to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. He says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Paul gives more detail to the Thessalonians who were um, potentially had, had gotten some bad teaching about the end times and the return of Christ and they thought that their, their dead loved ones had missed out on the return of Christ and they were lost forever. And so when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said this, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, your loved ones who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. In those days, in the Greek culture, they didn't believe in the afterlife. They felt like, hey, we, we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and that's it. Life's over, so get all you can, get, get all you can now from life, because that's all there is. And so uh, I heard some, one man say one time that, that he, he had read that, that they actually put the words, no hope, on the tombstones in Thessalonica. And so there was a reference here that he said, hey, I don't want you standing in front of a, of a tombstone weeping and grieving for your lost loved one as if, as if they're gone forever. Because if they know Christ, this was not goodbye, it was see you later. 
He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which we do, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. That trumpet thing kind of connects 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Thessalonians 4. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Notice this is not coming back on the white horses, right, to fight the Antichrist. Okay, this is something different. We're going to meet the Lord with the air in the air. Then we who are alive and will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, love this. How are these words to affect us? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Same reason why Jesus was telling them about the rapture, right, in John 14, was to comfort them. You say, well, what happens after the rapture? Well, just quickly, we don't have time to get into it, but after the church is raptured, I believe we'll celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, we'll be rewarded for our service to the Lord during our life on earth, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, and at the end of the tribulation, the seven years of tribulation, uh, when, when uh, the, 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 the Antichrist and all the nations of the world rise up against the Lord, he will return to the earth with us, Right? to fight against the Antichrist and the armies of the world to set up his kingdom and will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 19 and 20. It's pretty powerful this last spring when we were standing there with our group from Lakeside sitting up on Megiddos, uh, which is a um, kind of a little mound where centuries of, of civilization has built up, built up, built up, and it looks over the valley of Armageddon, the valley of Megiddo, where... According to Revelation, the final battle is going to be fought. And we were looking at the exact location. And I told our, our group, I said, hey, listen, guys, get a good look because we'll be back here someday. And find your position. Find out where you're going to hide out, where you're going to be shooting from, and where, all that stuff, right? Because this is where it's going to go down, and we're going to be all a part of that. I mean, it just kind of gives you goose chills, man, just thinking about it, actually being there. But that's the plan. That's the plan that he has. But notice number five, quickly the truth here that that would be easy to overlook. But notice he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now we know that heaven uh, is impossible to describe. In fact, it's probably easier to describe what heaven is not going to be like than what it's going to be like, right? Right? Um, I love what Revelation says. There will be no death, no sorrow, no tears, no pain, no night, right? And we all like, hey, that's awesome. But um, this passage in John 14 is not so much about what heaven will be like, but about the fact that Jesus will be there. Isn't that the point? Well, what are they sad about? What, are their, what is their heart trouble? Jesus, where are you going? We want to be with you. And he's saying, hey, don't worry, guys. I'll come back and get you so you can be with me. And we can be together forever. That's the point. It's, it's where I am, you may be also. 
And so we need to remember that no matter what we're looking forward to when we get to heaven, right, most, um, listen, Jesus is going to be the best part of heaven. That's what we should be longing for the most. It's like the, the thief on the cross, right? Luke 23, 43, today you will be with me in paradise. It wasn't the, hey, you'll be in paradise. Today you'll be in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. We, we sing that song, I Can Only Imagine, right? And it's true, you can only imagine what heaven might be like, but we need to remember that whatever, again, we're looking forward to most, it will pale in comparison to the fact that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, will be there. And we can commune with him for the rest of eternity. So the person in heaven is Jesus. And then lastly, the path to heaven. The path to heaven. Look at verse 4. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas now, because you know Peter kind of got shut down, right? He wasn't doing much talking after he found out he was going to deny the Lord three times. And so Thomas picks up in the place of Peter, I guess. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Well, we know Thomas, right? We know him as doubting Thomas um, because he wasn't about to believe that Jesus rose from the dead until he could actually see him or touch him. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll study that in, in, in John chapter 20. But up to this point, so far so good, he's... He's expressed his willingness to to die with Jesus, albeit pessimistically, in chapter 11, verse 16. Okay, guys, he wants to go. Let's go with him and die. He's going to get himself killed. Why don't we just go with him, right? That was kind of Thomas' attitude, I guess. And at this point, we maybe see some more signs of his skepticism or his realism and how he just kind of bluntly says, Jesus, time out. You're telling us we know how to get to where you're going, but we don't even know where you're going. So how, do we, how can we know, possibly know the way to get there if we don't even know where you're going? So apparently Thomas didn't understand that Jesus was talking about heaven. Maybe he was thinking of someplace here on earth, but that lent itself to one of Jesus' classic responses. And uh, here in verse 6, we have one of the most memorized, most quoted Verses in the whole Bible. This is one of the Jesus' famous one-liners of the Bible, right? Jesus said to him, verse 6, I am the way, Thomas. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, this was um, the sixth of the seven I am statements uh, in John's gospel. Remember, we've been keeping track of these seven statements that John um, interspersed at at strategic moments in his gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And now he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Notice what Jesus was saying here. Jesus didn't just come to show us the way to heaven. He is the way to heaven. Big difference. We are moving... uh, to Texas about 15 years ago from now. Wow, it's kind of crazy. We've been here 15 years. But when we were getting ready to move from California to Texas, somebody uh, warned us about asking for directions in Texas, especially in light of feeder roads. And she shared an experience. She says, yeah, I was there in Texas one time on a, on a, on a business trip, and I, and I got lost, and I needed to go somewhere. And the guy said, I said, how do I get to this place? He goes, oh, that's easy. He goes, you go down here, take a U-turn, then take another U-turn, and then you're there. 
And she's like, okay, if I go down here and take a U-turn, and then I come here and take another U-turn, I'm going to be back right here. But not with feeder roads, right? Feeder roads, that's how it works, okay? So I get lost everywhere I go. That's just, I'm not really good at directions. That's why I'm so thankful for my wife, because you can put a bag on her head, spin her around, and she knows exactly what direction. She's north, south, east, west. She's amazing. She's like an internal GPS or something. And I'm like a buffoon, and so I'll ask for directions, and halfway through the directions, I'm like, no, what did he say again? Was that left here or right? And I will invariably take the wrong turn, and then I'll have to backtrack. And so what I love, and this has happened a handful of times, I absolutely love this, is when I say, hey, can you help me get to this place? And they go, yeah, absolutely, listen. In fact, listen, I'm going there right now. Why don't you just follow me? And I'm like, yes! So I get, and I'm just following, and that's so easy, Right? Because the guy's not drawing me a map. He's not saying, now go down here, go over there, go here like this. He, he, he's, what is he? He's leading me there. He's become the way, right, to get me there. Jesus is the way to heaven. And not just one of many ways. It's not like you can go up to say, hey, Muhammad, could you help me find my way to heaven? Can you give me some directions? Hey, Ganesh, that's the Hindu god. Hey, Buddha. Hey, Joseph Smith, can you, can you kind of direct, can you just kind of point, point, point me in the right direction? It ain't happening. None of those guys can take you to heaven. I'll never forget a, a, a well-meaning um, Jewish man that I was having a conversation with, and he was telling me how he how he believed that getting to heaven was like climbing a mountain and there was all these different roads that kept from all different sides and it was just everyone was on their own little journey and as long as who you believed in and what you believed in, you were sincere about it that you would end up eventually getting to heaven. Well, we call that what? Universalism, right? Which is heresy. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. There's only one way to get to heaven and it is not living a, a good moral life. It's not sincerely believing the right things or doing the right things or keeping the Ten Commandments or going to church or getting baptized or getting confirmed or whatever else you did in your life, right? Listen, if you're trying to get to heaven by any other way than simply and solely trusting in the person and work of Jesus, then you are believing and you're living a lie and you will end up in hell. There is no other religious leader who ever lived that embodied the truth like Jesus did because no one else was God. What does it say? He was full of grace and truth. No other religious leader shed his blood for the sins of his followers. No one ever looked at Buddha or Joseph Smith or, 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 or Ganesh or Muhammad and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No other religious leader ever rose from the dead like Jesus because no one has life in himself. When he rose Lazarus, raised Lazarus from the dead, that's exactly what he said. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. No one else can say that. Well, they might be able to say it, but they can't follow up, right? They can't back it up. Jesus is the only one who can give us life. In fact, that's the whole point of this gospel that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. 
Bottom line is Jesus is the only way to the Father because he's the only one who ever came from the Father. He's the only way to the Father because he's the only one that ever came from the Father. I think it's interesting that in the early days of the church, the, 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 the believers, early Christians, were so insistent that Jesus was the only way to be saved. They were absolutely exclusive that there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. You know what they were called? The way. Several times in the book of Acts, they were called the way. They were just simply, it wasn't the church, it wasn't Christians, it was the way. What, a, what an honor, what, what, a, what a privilege. How, how much hope should that fill our hearts and our minds that by God's grace, we are part of the way. There's only one way. And we're in that way, by God's grace. Acts 4.12 there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, but the name of who? Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, and that is the man, not Joseph Smith, right? not Buddha, not Muhammad, it's the man Christ Jesus. We started this sermon by talking about the fascination that people have with, with heaven today. You ever ask yourself why that is? I'll tell you why I think it is. Because lots of things freak us out in life. Lots of things cause our hearts to be troubled, right? Our marriages and our families and our jobs and our finances and the economy and war in the Middle East and all that stuff troubles our hearts, but nothing troubles our hearts more than the thought of our death and not knowing where we will go when we die. What, what is out there? What comes after death? And so there's this intrigue. There's, uh, I want to know more about the afterlife. Do you know for sure where you will go after you die? You can know for sure. If you turn from your sin and you trust Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. If you're a believer already this morning, I would just encourage you by saying this, that, that if this was the only passage that we ever had to go on, right here, these six verses alone about heaven, it'd be enough, wouldn't it? It'd be enough for us to quiet our troubled hearts and give us hope and give us assurance of heaven. Listen, to seek greater proof than this from someone else's personal experience is to dishonor the Lord Jesus Christ. It's saying he's not enough and his words aren't enough. Listen, Jesus' words are all we need. They are enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us clear instruction in your word regarding heaven that there's no need for us to rely on other people's experiences or base our convictions or beliefs on what, what has happened to other people. Lord, we, we can hear the, the actual words of, uh, of Christ and we know that, that, that as Peter said, the Bible is a more sure word 
than what someone else might say. What you have said is, is way more um, verifiable, way more convincing, way more trustworthy than what anybody else could possibly tell us. And so, Lord, help us to find joy and hope in the sufficiency of your word, in the sufficiency of Christ. And Lord, thank you for the way these truths about heaven can really um, inspire us and and, and motivate us and, and grant us the endurance that we need to go through whatever you have ordained for our lives because we know that ultimately we will get to go to heaven and we will get to be with you. Lord, I pray you'd help us to long more for that day when we'll see you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.